Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So we've been in this sermon series called Don't Be a Troll, and we've been uh, kind of talking about the using this metaphor of the mythological image of a troll that, that lives under a bridge and just kind of accosts people as they're going by, um, trying to get a toll fee from them. But a, a troll living under a bridge is a very lonely existence. Uh, and I would suppose if you could sit and get to know our troll, who uh, our Facebook group dubbed Trolly McTrollface, um, I'm sure if you could sit with Trolly McTrollface for a little while, you'd, you'd get this sense that he's lonely, that he's craving real relationships. He's craving belonging. He's craving a sense of, of purpose and belonging. And so one of the things, this st- kind of starting premise that we have for this whole sermon series is that true community is only found on the other side of tough conversations. That if we really want to be a community of faith, if we really want to have real relationships with people, we actually have to have tough conversations and work through them that it's found on the other side of those tough conversations. But one of the things that we probably all recognize is that our ability to have nuanced and deep conversations as a, as a society is getting tougher and is getting harder. Um, I used to be part of a, a, a blog network, and there was a group of us that were writing together before I just I didn't have the time to keep it up. But a friend of mine on that, Kevin, he had this comment. He said, I think the w- reason that we're losing this ability is everyone wants that mic drop moment. Everyone in a conversation wants to like drop that line that just goes boom, end of discussion. Everyone changes their mind to agree with you. And we look for that in conversations. But the truth is that doesn't really work that way. That doesn't come out in reality. Conversations usually take time and nuance, and, and we have to have the patience to walk with people through that. And so that's what we're tackling in this sermon series, is how do we have these real conversations? And because we're a church, and because we talk about God and we talk about Christ, we have this kind of extra angle we've been putting on it about how do we have these tough conversations about faith? How does, how does conversations about faith fit into this too? But everything we're talking about could apply to any kind of conversation that you need to have, any one of those crucial conversations. Because we've all had those tough conversations that kind of went sideways on us, and maybe it cost us a, a relationship, or maybe it was a setback in a project because we wish we could have that do-over. We wish we could have hit rewind and redone that conversation. We know, oh, I would have said things differently. But wouldn't it be better to know those things on the front end and do the conversation differently in the first place? So that's what we're digging into today. We're talking about how do we have conversations? How do we talk about something instead of fighting about it. And so we're going to spend our time today in just one book of the Bible, um, in one chapter of Acts. Now, Acts is the book that follows the gospel, so it comes right after the, the accounts of Jesus' life. And Acts follows really two main characters. The book starts off following Peter, the oldest of the disciples, and what Peter does as the church begins to grow after Jesus' death and resurrection. And then partway through the book of Acts, the narrative kind of shifts and we start following Paul um, and what he does and where he travels and where he goes and we start seeing what God is accomplishing through Paul. And we're just going to be in Acts 17 today um, where Paul visits three cities in a row. And we're going to look at what he does in these cities and how we encounter people and how he talked about them. And as we go through that, 
we'll get a sense of how do we have these conversations instead of letting them turn into fights or arguments that, that got, get hostile. And as we go, I just want to invite you one more time to join us on the YouVersion Bible app. Um, and you can join in the conversation. And there's a couple questions that I'm going to ask right near the end. And we're going to have a discussion about this passage and what we've learned through, about it together. So all three cities that Paul visits, he visits first Thessalonica and then Berea and then goes to Athens, the capital city of modern-day Greece. And Athens was a major city, and there's some big things about Athens we're going to get to. But Thessalonica and Berea were kind of smaller cities on the road towards Athens. And what Paul does in all three cities is he starts off exactly the same way. See, Paul, whenever he would enter a new city, his goal was to tell people about Jesus. This was his purpose as as being an apostle. And so when he entered a city, as was his custom, he would go to the local synagogue service, which would be a gathering of Jewish people, and they would gather together, and they had this practice where when they gathered, um, it wasn't someone teaching from the front. They would pull open a scroll of their scripture, which is our Old Testament, and they would discuss it together. You know, whoever was leading the synagogue, or if there was a traveling teacher like Paul was, they would come in, and they'd pick a passage, and they'd say, all right, let's debate this. Let's discuss this. And there's a reason for it. The Jewish people had this wonderful perspective towards scripture where they said we can be friends and we can care for each other deeply but we can wrestle and we can debate what our scripture means because we believe that God will steer us to the truth in every debate that eventually we could keep wrestling over this passage time and time again and eventually we're going to get to what's true so they had this practice of it so Paul would come to the synagogue service and for three Sabbaths in a row He would use scripture to reason with the people. He would go to these promises about Jesus all through the Old Testament and talk about how Jesus fulfilled them and how Jesus is the Messiah that the Jewish people were waiting on for centuries. So Paul would explain these prophecies and he would prove that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. And he'd tell them, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Now, some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and would join Paul and Silas along with many of the God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. In each city he'd go to, there'd be a, a percentage. There'd be a group of people who'd say, yeah, we believe you. We're with you on that. And as Paul would travel, these groups of people that would come to faith in Jesus would become the first churches in these cities as Christianity started to spread throughout the known world. Now, this is what Paul does in all three cities. Uh, he does this in Thessalonica. He does this in Berea. He does this in Athens. But the results sometimes change. See, in Thessalonica, there was a a group that that followed, that listened and said, yeah, we believe what you're saying about Jesus. But then there was another group that said, no, we don't agree. And in fact, we want you gone. And so they formed a mob and started to riot and started to throw the city into turmoil. And then they went to the leaders of the city and they'd say, this Paul and Silas, they're causing nothing but problems. We need to arrest them. We need to get rid of them. And what ended up happening in Thessalonica is they couldn't find Paul and Silas. They were hiding. Um, But the guy they were staying with, his name was Jason. And so they brought Jason before the city council and Jason had to post bond. He had to take all of his wealth and give it to the high council. And they would hold it. And if another disturbance happened, he would lose all that. But if enough time passed without another disturbance, then he would get his money back. And that was their way of keeping the peace. And so 
Paul and Silas left Thessalonica and went on to Berea, and they were okay with that for this reason. See, they had a long-term view. They knew that they had built up this group of early believers in Thessalonica, and it was okay to move on because they would carry on talking about Jesus. See, this is our first step of our guide to better conversations. We need to have a long-term view. We don't We need to to get rid of this idea that says we need to change everything instantly right now. And we need to have a longer-term view of the process and say it's okay for this to take time. And so Paul and Silas went on to the next city. They went on to Berea. And in Berea, the people were actually quite receptive. And what they did is they started on their own time studying through their scripture to say, is this true what Paul's saying? And the more and more they studied, they said, yes, this is true. And so the Bereans were coming to faith at a, at a high percentage. A lot of people were saying, yes, what Paul's saying about Jesus is true. But of course, this group from Thessalonica isn't done causing trouble. And so they come to Berea chasing after Paul and Silas and try to do the same thing. They try to start a riot in Berea. And this time the Bereans say, we don't want any part of violence. We don't want any part of this disturbance. And so they actually send Paul on to Athens for his safety. But here's what they did, though. Here's our second point. They didn't force Paul into conflict with this group of troublemakers. In fact, Paul never forced the conversations to happen. When his welcome was overstayed, he said, you know what? There's a, there's a base of people who believe in Jesus, and that's a start. This comes back to that having a long term. Because if the Bereans had been unreceptive, You know, Paul and Silas would have stayed there for a bit and carried on anyway. See, no one wants to be trapped in a conversation. You know, you've all been there at one point where you're in a conversation with someone and you're just thinking, how do I get out of this? You know, you're like, do I I fiddle with my watch? Do I fiddle with my phone? Maybe you've even been to the point where you like discreetly text and you're like, call me in five minutes, make up an emergency, get me out of here. You know, maybe it was a first date, maybe, no? no, no one's had that. That's only happened to me. I'm not, I'm not sure I believe that's only happened to me. But we've all been in that situation where we're like, when is this conversation going to end? I just want out. See, if we want to have better conversations, we can't trap people in the conversation. If someone says, you know what, I'm done talking about this, you can't force them to stay. In fact, this is one of the things that when I'm, I'm sitting down and I work through a pre-marriage course with couples that I'm going to um, officiate their marriage And this is one of the things we talk about quite extensively is how to have good conversations. Because that's really at the core of any relationship is how do you have good conversations. So we talk about how do you set good parameters around pausing a conversation to say, let's cool off and come back to this when we're level-headed. And it's about having that longer-term view, not forcing the conversation. See, here's why. If we purely try to reason with people, if we purely try to use logic and rational thinking, we often miss the mark. And the reason for that is that God created us to be relational. God created us to connect with one another on an emotional level, more so than a rational and logic, logical way. And so here's our third point. Relationships matter more than reason. Paul and Silas cared more about building a strong relationship with this early group of Christians than they did about trying to use reason and logic to force everyone to agree with them that Jesus really is the Messiah. See, they took a relational approach to telling people about Jesus. 
And in any conversation, this is true. If you're in a, in a conflict with someone, if you're trying to wrestle through a concept at work or, or make a decision about where to go, ask yourself, am I connecting relationally with this person? Am I connecting on an emotional level? Why do they feel that their perspective is the right answer? And can you understand their point of view? Because when we can honestly emphasize, empathize and understand another person's point of view, that's when we're connecting relationally. And that's where what happens is suddenly we actually shift positions. And instead of being me versus you, we can shift and say it's us versus this issue. We can actually, when we connect relationally, we actually can stand together with someone dealing with an issue rather than it becoming about winning and losing. Because no one wants to be in that conversation if it suddenly devolves into just winning and losing. And so there's this question, how do we connect relationally instead of just rationally? See, Paul and um, Silas later on got sent off to Athens for their own safety. And so Paul was sent ahead and, and he spends some time in Athens alone before Silas and the rest of the group traveling with him join up. And what happens in Athens, this, we're now at Acts 6, 17, we're about to start into verse 16. What happens in Athens is what I believe one of the most important passages of Scripture for the church in our modern world today. And this is one of those passages where if we can grasp and we understand what Paul did and how he did it, it would do amazing things for how do we actually have real conversations. Because what Paul does is he completely breaks his pattern. He starts off the same. He starts off when he gets to Athens. He visits and he wanders the city. And it says this in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by the idols he saw everywhere in the city. But he went to the synagogues to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. So he started off with partially the same plan. He went to the synagogue But he also started going into the public square. He started to go where people were congregating and meeting and he would talk with them about whatever he could to start building these conversations. And what happens is Athens is this wealthy trade city. And Athens, if you you know some of your Greek history at all, you know that this is kind of the center city of the Greek philosophers. Guys like Aristotle and the Epicureans and the Stoics all came out of Athens. Uh, Most of them well before Jesus. And so Paul would get into conversations with these groups. And one day in particular, he gets into a conversation with these Epicureans and Stoics, and they don't understand what Paul's talking about. They just don't get it the way that Paul's hoping they would. But they say to him, instead of dismissing him, this is what's cool, they open a door for Paul. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. See, Paul wasn't forcing it, but when the door opened, he took it, and he goes to the high council, and he has this opportunity to speak to the the leaders of the city and the leading thinkers and philosophers of Athens. He gets this audience, and so what's he going to do with it? This is where he completely changes his script. As Paul was standing before the council, he addressed them as follows. He said, men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. 
And one of your altars had an inscription on it to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He didn't go to the Old Testament scriptures because the men of Athens didn't believe that the Jewish scriptures held any value beyond any other written document. So he didn't go there. He didn't use that as the basis of his argument. Instead, he took something they had in common. He said, I see that you are very religious. And then he pulls up this altar that he found somewhere that was inscribed to an unknown God. Some craftsman had built this altar and just said, well, it's to an unknown God and we'll worship it. And, you know, it's just, it's just hedging our bets. We're going to cover all our bases is probably what that craftsman was thinking when he made that. But Paul took this piece of culture and he used what he had in common with them. He used in common saying, but yes, you're very religious. You have all these shrines, but I'm going to tell you about this unknown God that you don't know about. And this is how what Paul says as he carries on. Verse 24, Paul says, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he's Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. This is fascinating to me. Because here's what Paul just did. He knows that the Athenians worship all these idols. And if you know your Greek mythology, you know they have a whole pantheon of different gods. But those gods have a very different relationship with mankind. In fact, mankind is the plaything of the Greek gods and the Roman gods. Mankind is just there to serve the whims of them, and they have to, mankind has to build these lavish temples that were all over Athens, and some of them still stand today, to prove that, well, we shouldn't be destroyed by these Athenian pagan gods. See, this was the common reality of the Athenian, of anyone who was religious in, in Athens, is you had your deities that you had to appease on a regular basis, because if you didn't, they would get angry with you. And Paul completely flips this around. He says, I'm telling you about this unknown God who made everything, not just one little realm. He made everything. He gives life and breath to everything. And he doesn't need anything from us. We don't have to do anything if we don't want to. See, this is where Paul changes it. Because an idol is man-made. And deep in the minds, and, and the Greek philosophers wrote about this, they knew that their gods, so to speak, were made up. They knew that they weren't real, but it was the common identity that bound the people together, and that's why they emphasized it. But Paul comes and he says, I'm going to tell you about a God that was not made up, the God that gave life to everything. And he digs into this further. He tells them about how God doesn't need anything from us, but instead God wants something from us. He wants to be in a relationship with us. And Paul uses this to talk about the one man that God sent, that God himself stepped into the world as Jesus, fully divine, fully man, to tell us and to invite us into a relationship with God. See, Paul takes their culture, he finds what's common, and then he steers it to tell them about who God really is using language and using what means that they would understand. See, he came into the Athenian court 
and he spoke in ways an Athenian would understand to tell them about Jesus. He didn't go to his comfort zone, which would have been the Jewish scriptures, because they didn't respect the Jewish scriptures. So why go? Why, why build your case on something you know that they don't respect? Instead, Paul spoke to be understood. See, and this is one of those guides to better conversations, and this one especially applies to conversations about faith. Don't use jargon. Don't use a vocabulary that doesn't have meaning to the person you're speaking with. We need to speak to be understood. Now, if I have a theology degree, you know, I have this fancy piece of paper that sits on top of my shelf. Uh, I have a theology degree. I could get up here and we could talk about the hypostatic union of Christ. We could talk about propitiation. We could talk about Arianism and modalism and how they're both wrong. We could dig into all these theological questions. But none of you have any clue what I just said. All you're thinking is, wow, Brian's really trying to justify the money he spent on all that tuition dollars. Yeah, you're right, I am. I've got to get something out of that piece of paper. But here's the point. If someone needs a theology degree to understand what you're saying, it's not a conversation anymore. They're checking their watch. They're checking their phone. They're looking for an escape. They're feeling trapped. We need to speak in ways that our culture will understand. We need to speak plainly and clearly. We need to use what our world knows and take that and steer it towards God because that's how we have real conversation. We need to get away from using jargon. We need to speak plainly and clearly because that's what Paul did in Athens. He's speaking to a group that knows nothing about God. He uses their culture and he explains to them who God is through their own vocabulary In fact, what Paul does is then he carries on and he keeps talking about Jesus and he talks about how Jesus rose from the dead. And this is the point where he kind of loses them a bit. It says this, When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, We want to hear more about this later. See, that first group that laughed in contempt, there's a reason why. See, they believed that if you really were a god, you couldn't die. And the concept of a God dying just means, well, you have no power, you have nothing. But see, our understanding of why Jesus went to the cross, why Jesus willingly chose to die, was for our benefit. He had to give up and empty himself so that he even could be killed on the cross. He had to make it possible for himself to die so that we could have this path open for us to be in a relationship with him. See, the the Christian concept of God dying is actually one of perfect sacrificial love in the service of something greater. Perfect sacrificial love so that we could have a relationship with God. But the Athenians, they couldn't handle this because they said suddenly if, 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 if a God dies, well, that means it all must be fake. So some of them laughed in contempt, and that's okay, it's going to happen. But others said, we want to hear more about this. So that ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined Paul, some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And this is the start of the church in Athens. Paul walks into a city where he feels uncomfortable, he feels troubled by it, but this opportunity comes up and he speaks in their own language, and a church is born. And a group of people come to believe in Jesus. See, Paul took this common 
he built his argument in ways they could understand, and then he gave time for them to reflect and think about it. See, notice it said, some time later they came to Paul. When we want to have better conversations, we need to give people time to reflect. We need to give people time to think, to process what we're talking about. How do we talk about things in ways that lets people have time? Because if a conversation turns into a hostile argument, all we're doing is further entrenching ourselves. We're in fact pushing ourselves to have less of a conversation and more of just shooting statements back and forth at each other, and that doesn't get us anywhere. That doesn't build relationships. I want to give one last piece before we come to our discussion questions, and then we're going to move to communion. But here's the one last piece. When we're talking with someone, especially if we're talking about faith, I think it's a lot more important if we can take the stance of saying, I'd rather share with you why I believe rather than telling you what I believe. Because if someone wants to know, well, what does a Christian believe in? Chances are, where do we go for information now? We go to Google. We go to Wikipedia. Anyone can read and understand and see a summary of, well, this is what Christians believe. But if you want to share your faith with someone and say, this is why my faith matters to me, share why, not what. Share why this matters to you. Share why this is a choice you've made. Rather than, getting into the theological, well, this is what? Share why. Because why lets us connect relationally. What takes us to reason. And as we said before, we'd rather live in the realm of relationships and use that. And then reason can be something that gets added on. But if we have that base of relationships, we can talk about difficult conversations way more than we ever could. And so here, we just have two questions today. And I want to turn this over to the wisdom sitting in the room here of saying, what's your advice for preventing a conversation from turning hostile? And then secondly, what change will you make to have better conversations about tough topics? Um, And so uh, Mac, sitting somewhere around here, Max, he said he's got his Fitbit on, so he's ready to run around with the mic. Um, And I just, if you're typing something in on the app, it'll pop up here on my screen right away. But as you think about this first question, what's your advice? Maybe what's something you've learned from experience or from making the mistake yourself? What's your advice for help for preventing a conversation from turning hostile? And I'll just read a couple of things that came in, and then if you've got something to add, just stick up your hand. Um, Spend more time listening than talking. Um, Don't assume that people understand. Um, Listen and validate the other person's opinion even when you don't agree. That's a great one. Show that you care about them as a person and validate where their position is, and that really helps. What else is is out there? What kind of wisdom do we have from those of us sitting here? How do you help prevent a conversation from turning hostile? Just stick up your hand, and Mac will bring you a microphone. Just right up the front here, Mac. Don't interrupt. Don't interrupt the person because, I mean, that's nothing that makes me matter personally. Then when somebody interrupts, it doesn't feel like they're listening to me. They just want to get their point across. Exactly. When you interrupt, what you're saying is what I have to say is more important than you. And even though we may just think what's more important than what you're saying, what we're actually communicating is what I'm going to say matters more than you. Yeah, that's a great one. Don't interrupt. Let people finish their thoughts. What, What else is out there? wisdom of how we can 
prevent conversations from turning hostile. I think it starts before the conversation has begun. It's how you go into it. Um, so if you're kind of hard-headed and set in your ways and you're just going into the conversation to change someone, then it's going to be hostile. But if you soften yourself and go in as more of a discussion to discuss an issue or talk about something, then you'll probably be more successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, a lot of that boils down to humility. How are we... How do we have humility as we come into conversations with people? How about for the second one? What's maybe a change that you've made or one that you want to try to make? How, what's a change you want to make to have better conversations? Um, and there's a, a comment in here saying, uh, kind of along the lines of what we've even talked about, I need more patience and less sarcasm. Yeah, sarcasm never, that's, that's one that gets me in trouble often. Um, Take advantage of opportunities instead of watching them go by. Sometimes we need to take the risk of, of bringing up a topic or entering into a conversation instead of just ignoring it and letting it pass by. Um, but what else is out there? What, what change is maybe something you've been wanting to make or have made um, about having better conversations? Asking the difficult questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ask, asking a difficult question Instead sometimes. Instead of just observing and, and uh, oftentimes I'll be having a conversation thinking, you know, why is this person coming across this way or whatever and actually just going out and asking, you know, why are you feeling this way or uh, being prepared for that instead of just ignoring it and trying to glance the, the mm-hmm. conversation away. Yeah, asking, asking more questions. It's almost kind of treating it with curiosity. Um, and oftentimes we get in that trap where we're in a conversation, but it's just statements going back and forth. You know, maybe try asking more questions in a conversation than just statements. Um, what else? If I have gone through something myself, it's much easier to have the same conversation with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I'm able to be vulnerable, that helps a lot. Being vulnerable, sharing your own experiences, um, especially in difficult situations, is a huge way of, of helping. If I said this, I've been distracted by this one, but, or someone else already said this. But for me, it takes a big load off when I don't have to have all the answers. And it's very valuable to just say, I don't know, sometimes, when you're having hard work conversations with people. I think we harm them and our and our, whatever, our mission or our hope when we pretend we have an answer to every question that they offer because then we start digging holes that we can't <laughs> possibly fill. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the biggest thing for me is when I don't know a hard question, the answer, just say, I don't know, that's a great question, but I don't know. Yeah, and I think people will respect us a lot more if we say, honestly, I don't know, rather than if we grasp at straws and try to, to fabricate a response in the moment. I think we actually gain a lot more respect when we're honest and say, yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but maybe we can figure it out together. Any last thought before we we carry on? Earlier I said that this passage about Paul in Athens is one of the most important passages for the church today. And I really do believe that because Paul speaks to a culture that doesn't, by default, understand him. But he finds a way 
And it's often what we would consider an unorthodox way because he doesn't go to all the usual routes. He doesn't go to his script. He doesn't go to his comfort zone. He goes to where they are and uses that to share about who God is. And this applies to any kind of tough conversation we're in, any sort of crucial conversation, because when we are willing to meet people where they're at, we can get a completely different response than if we say, well, you need to come and see everything from my perspective, and then we'll, we'll get to a solution. But how do we meet people where they're at? Last week, we talked about how do we get our troll to step out from his bridge? How do we get him to step out from his place of isolation, from his bubble, and go forward and actually interact with people? And today, we're, we're trying to help our troll learn how to talk instead of fight, Because talking always gets us way further in the end than fighting and having an argument about it. Next week, we're going to be talking about how do we get our troll to take a few steps further. But before we go there, we're going to do, we have this practice together as a community of faith called communion. And what communion is, is this time where we as a church, um, and this is a practice by all churches, that we come and we reenact a portion of the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples. And Jesus and his disciples, we have records of a lot of their conversations throughout Scripture. And one of the things that we often, we can harp on because we have hindsight, but we talk about how often, how much the disciples just didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Even though Jesus kept trying time and time again, the disciples didn't always get it. And as they came to it during the Last Supper, as they came to this part where Jesus had the first communion with them. They didn't get it then either. Because Jesus made this promise. He, he talked about how the elements, the bread and the wine, um, we use grape juice. Uh, he talked about how these elements represented the sacrifice he was about to make. That he was willingly choosing to die, to sacrifice himself for us. And then he made this promise. And he said to you, I promise I'm not going to drink from this cup again until I drink it new in the kingdom with you. And the disciples didn't get it. Even though Jesus had been talking about this concept of God's kingdom, of of kingdom of heaven, so many times throughout the Gospels, the disciples were still wrestling with it. And it wasn't until later, it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came that they truly got it. And we get to look at it now when we understand that Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven as being this time when God's presence would be able to fully saturate the earth. That all the barriers between creation between mankind and God would be removed. And we get little tastes and little pieces and little glimpses of that as the kingdom is being made real here. And as we have these tough conversations, as we share about our faith, those are moments when God's presence is coming into the world more and more and more. And so as we come to communion today, I want to encourage you to, usually I I talk about us reflecting on what it meant that Jesus had a sacrifice. But today I want us to have a different focus as we come to communion. Who's someone you know that you'd really like to share your faith with? Who's someone you know that's maybe going through a tough time and you have a similar experience and you could share how your walk with God sustained you and helped you and how knowing God's love made a difference in your life? As we come to communion, I want you to think about maybe a time where someday you could share this with that person. Where someday... They could maybe be here and take communion and celebrate what God has done for us. And so um, 
Uh, Allie at the back is going to play some soft music, and I want to invite you just to come up. The bread on the silver trays is gluten-free if you need that. Um, and take the elements, take a bit of the, the juice and a piece of the bread, and take a moment and just think about what it could mean to share what God has done for us with others. Um, and after that, the band's going to come up, and we do this thing here every time we d- take communion where we do a benevolent offering, and we, we pass the af- offering bags a second time, and those funds never stay here. We find ways to help people in our community, and there's, there's lots of examples that, and ways of how we've used that to help others in the past. And so when the offering bags come by, you know that's what that's about. If you'd prefer to, to give debit or online, you can just stick a memo that says benevolent on it, um, and you can do it that way too. But I want to invite you to just take a moment Reflect on that and come up and take the elements as the music plays. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.